Uh, this morning, we'll be wrapping up um, our series in the book of Ruth. And to be honest with you, I'm a little bit sad about that. It's been, for me, one of the more, more fun series to, to prep for. Um, but it's, it's not over yet. Uh, the climax, the grand finale of one of the greatest little stories uh, ever told is going to be this morning. And so uh, if you are joining us and, and you're not a Christian, you're not a, not a follower of Jesus, man, we're, we're always super happy that you're here. I do think that you picked probably a good Sunday to come because I think Ruth chapter four really encapsulates well uh, what the gospel is all about, what our faith in Christ is all about. And so uh, if you're here as a Christian, my hope is that this morning will just add more fuel to the fire for you, uh, maybe in a fresh way as you contemplate how glorious and how beautiful um, your redemption in Jesus really is. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and grab that, open it up, and make a beeline for Ruth chapter four. That's what will be this morning. Let me do a quick recap while you find your place, in case you've maybe missed a week. Uh, the book opens with a pretty dark scene, if you remember back like a month ago when we started the series. Ruth one opens with a scene of death, destruction, and devastation. Uh, we meet a family in the city of Bethlehem with uh, the husband Elimelech, the wife Naomi. They have two sons. A famine hits Bethlehem, uh, things get really hard, and they make the fateful decision to leave the promised land and move to an enemy nation called Moab. So they move to Moab, and instead of getting better, things actually get worse in Moab. So Elimelech, the father, dies. The two sons, um, Malon and Kilion, also die in Moab. And, and the mom, the wife, Naomi, is left all alone, completely broken, devastated, empty, and even honestly a little bitter, a little angry at God for what has transpired in her life. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here and you feel like Naomi. You know what that feels like, to feel like just kind of a shell of a person, maybe just going through the motions, kind of empty in life. Well, that's, how, that's how Naomi was. And Naomi decides to, to go back to the promised land once all of her family is dead. Um, and the good news is one of her daughter-in-laws, uh, Ruth, who is miraculously converted um, from paganism, she begins to love and follow God, the God of the Bible, and she decides to go back with her. Um, but they get back to Bethlehem, and they're, they're hungry. They're still hungry. They're still homeless. They're still destitute. They're in a really bad situation. They need two things when they get back. They need food, and they need redemption. And we've talked a lot this series about redemption, particularly in this culture, because, um, man, 3,000 years ago in this particular culture, a childless widow had, had no hope like no chance at any kind of life unless someone called a family redeemer showed up to rescue them at great personal cost to themselves. And so that's, that's what they're hoping for. They're praying that God will provide for them, give them food so they won't starve to death. And they're also praying that God will provide a, a redeemer and give them a hope and give them a, a future. And so, so far they've, they've had food, but they're still waiting on the redeemer. Chapter two introduces us to Boaz, this guy that looks suspiciously like Jesus, and uh, man, he feeds Ruth, he feeds Naomi, shows them lots of grace, lots of love, lots of mercy, lots of kindness, and we even see uh, what appears to be a budding romance between uh, Boaz and, and Ruth. And then last week, if you were here in chapter three, things got a little heated, didn't they? Things got a little scandalous. Some of y'all were sweating. You had to wipe the sweat beads off of your forehead. I was sweating a little bit up here, uh, preaching through Ruth chapter three, but we got through it. And uh, Ruth chapter three, Ruth makes a really daring, mind-blowingly bold move. She basically, under the cover of darkness, uh, sneaks under the covers at night 
of Boaz and proposes marriage. And amazingly, Boaz's answer is like, heck yeah, I will marry you. I want it. I've been wanting to marry you. This is awesome. But there's always a but in these stories, right? There's, there's a hiccup in the love story because there's another man. There's another guy on the scene who actually is a closer relative who has the first right to redeem and marry Ruth. And so chapter three ended in a bit of a, a cliffhanger, if you will, and we've been left wondering all week long, like, hey, what, what's gonna happen? Like, is this other guy who has the first right to marry Ruth, is he actually gonna get to marry her? Um, is, the, is the romance that we've been tracking along for the last month, is that, is, is that really gonna go up in flames? Is that gonna fall apart right when it seems like Boaz and Ruth are gonna get together and we're getting excited, like, man, it's gonna be a fairy tale ending and now there's this other guy and we're just like, man, what is gonna happen? And today, we're gonna find out. And so we'll all either leave this morning crying together or celebrating together uh, there's not really any middle ground to how this story uh, could turn out. So chapter four, starting in verse one, says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer, that's this other guy, right, who's entered the picture. So behold, the redeemer, other, other man, of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz went out into the street and punched him in the face and said, you cannot have my girl Ruth, back off. Now that's not what he said. He said, Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So it tells us right off the bat that Boaz goes to the city gate in order to try to grab this other guy, this potential redeemer, and settle things with him once and for all. And so we're just kind of wondering, man, what's, what's gonna happen here? Um, Who's gonna get to take Ruth as, as his bride? High stakes. In this culture, the city gate was kinda like the, the town hall and the courthouse all rolled into one. Uh, this is the place in the city where people would go for uh, big decisions, judgments. Um, that's kinda where they happened in, in this time. And so the narrator goes, and behold, so Boaz is there, he's looking, and behold, the other redeemer shows up. And this is the narrator, as, as they've done throughout the entire book, in a subtle way, really reminding us of God's hidden hand of providence that is always at work on behalf of his people. And so the idea is kind of like, well, Boaz goes out to the gate, and it just so happened, right? Behold, the other guy shows up right on time when Boaz needs to talk to him. And again, the narrator is just reminding us God is never late. He is always right on time. And even when you don't think he's working in the circumstances in your life, he is absolutely working on your behalf, as we see in this story. Also notice that it doesn't mention this other suitor's name. Now, if you've noticed, the, the, the book of Ruth is full of names. Like, it, it tends to name everybody. There, there, there's no hidden names. We know tons of names in this book. And yet, this guy shows up, and he's nameless, and he's faceless on the pages of history. And as I understand it, if you read it in the Hebrew, uh, the idea, it literally kind of reads like Mr. So-and-so showed up, or Mr. Mr. No-Name shows up. So I, I think this is almost like an intentional slight by the author. This is meant to be seen as a negative. As we'll see in a moment, this guy is actually more concerned with his own self-interest and his wealth than caring for other people. And consequently, he is forgotten 
in the pages of history while Boaz is remembered and celebrated even to our day. We're doing that this morning, right? So good lesson for us there. That leads us right into our first uh, kind of big truth or big idea this morning. Number one, living selfishly can cause you to miss God's best for you. Living selfishly can cause you and I to miss God's best, his best pathway for us in this life. And that's precisely what we're gonna see happen to Mr. So-and-so here. He's so focused on himself that he is going to actually miss the greatest opportunity that he would ever have in his life. Well, Boaz sees Mr. No-Name show up at the gate and he goes, hey, friend, friend, it's me, Boaz. Come over here, come over here. Sit down for a spell. We need, we need to catch up, bro. We, need to, we need, to, need to talk for a bit. Verse two, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And so Boaz finds the other guy, has him sit down, you know, pours him a cup of coffee. He goes and finds 10 of the elders and he has them sit down. And it just seems like there's a lack of urgency here on Boaz's part. Like, brother, what, what are you doing? This feels slow. It feels like Boaz is taking his sweet time here. And it also, if we're being frank, it felt like he was taking his sweet time in chapters two and three, and here he is doing it again. So I'm reading this whole narrative, this whole story, this whole book, and I'm thinking, Boaz, what is taking you so long, man? Like, don't you realize that you are ruthless right now? I've been waiting all month for that one. Shout, shout out to Eric Helselberg who gave me uh, that joke and I've just kept it in my back pocket all month long. So that, that's good. All right, verse three. He's ruthless. He's taking his time. Verse three. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the other guy said, well, I will redeem it. Uh, understand this, Bo Boaz, is, Boaz is totally setting this guy up. Now, he doesn't do anything or say anything dishonest. I want to be clear about that. But Boaz clearly at this point loves Ruth. He wants to rescue her, redeem her make her his wife, and so he strategically leads in the conversation with some random little plot of land, right? And he, go, he goes, hey man, Naomi has this plot of land that belongs to her dead husband, Elimelech, and you're, you're first in line to buy it if you wanna buy it. And the other guy's like, heck yeah, man, that's, that's a no-brainer, man. There's, there's not a whole lot of usable land left in Bethlehem. It's kind of like Asheville. You know, there's a lot, a lot of value there. And so this is an easy investment. This is a chance for me to perhaps diversify my, my portfolio a bit, increase my revenue stream a little bit. And so he's like, heck yeah, give me the contract. I will sign it. I want to buy this piece of land. And we kind of read that and we go, uh-oh. Like, Boaz blew it, man. This guy wants to sign. He's going to get Ruth. Like, what are you thinking, Boaz? Verse then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz is like, oh, I, I forgot to mention 
this one little detail that when you buy that land, you not only get Naomi, this old bitter widow that you've got to care for for her entire life, you also get Ruth. And did I mention that she's from Moab? You know, like the Moabite women that caused 24,000 Israelis to die in one day in the book of Numbers? Yeah, that Moab. She's also a widow of a dead guy, which means she's not a virgin, which would have been a big deal, particularly in that culture. And you got to marry her, and because she didn't have any kids with her first husband, that means your first son with Ruth will actually be an heir for her dead husband. So you don't get any of the profit from the land that you buy. It all goes to her dead husband's family. You still in? You, 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 you interested, man? Does that sound like a good idea? Now, this is, this is awesome. But Boaz easily could have led with, hey, Ruth is this, man, beautiful young lady, this godly woman from Moab. She's got the sweetest personality, one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. She's the talk of town. Like, all the young guys want to marry her. I'm dying to marry her. Um, but you get first right. Like, he didn't lead with that, did he? <laughs> now, now, again, he, he's not being dishonest, but Boaz is just a smart dude. There's, there's no lying here that takes place. He's just being strategic. I really appreciate the way Boaz thinks and, and kind of interacts with the situation. Verse six, then the redeemer, this other guy, right? The redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, Take my right, Boaz, of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Mr. No-Name hears the rest of the story, and he's like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Thanks, but no thanks, Boaz. Like, man, I thought we were friends. Why are you trying to do me like that, man? I, why didn't you tell me that on the front end? This could actually affect my wealth. This could affect my inheritance and affect the inheritance for my kids, man. Why? Get out of my face, Boaz. I don't want that. You, ta you take this. So Boaz, actually his strategy works, he pulls it off, this guy walks away from the opportunity to marry Ruth and he's winning, right? Boaz has just won the battle and so it's kind of like this picture of like, get out of my face, Mr. No Name and it's kind of this scene where confetti probably starts falling down in the background, we are champions, start, starts playing from Queen, right? Verse seven, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning uh, redeeming and, and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one would, would draw off his sandal and give it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he, he drew off his sandal. And he, that's weird, right? He hands it to, to Boaz. Uh, there apparently was some kind of strange custom in these days that when you stepped in to somebody's role as the primary redeemer, uh, to redeem someone else, they would actually take off their sandal and they would hand it to you as a sign that, they were, that you were taking their place of redemption. Now again, seems a little bit strange to me. Um, the way I pictured this as I was reading it is maybe Boaz is kind of taking Mr. Mr. No Name's sandal and he's kind of holding it up like in The Lion King. Rafiki takes, takes little Simba and holds it up like a, a sign of celebration, right? He's like, behold, the sandal is mine. And I get to marry Ruth now. And I could not figure out how to Photoshop a sandal in there, so you, but you get, you get the idea, right? And he's celebrating. He's got the other dude's sandal. I can marry Ruth now. I have the right to marry her. The crowd goes wild. Verse nine, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day 
that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to his sons, Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people, or native place, rather. You are witnesses this day. Now, th this essentially, it, it, we wouldn't know this, like reading it, but this is essentially Boaz doing a victory lap here, right? I, I picture Boaz maybe, maybe flexing a little bit right here. Like Boaz, where's the beach? It's right over there, man. He's celebrating here. He's going, you are all witnesses. I am the redeemer, and Ruth is gonna be my bride. I have one. And the crowd gathers, apparently. Now, you not only have the 10 elders there, but a crowd has gathered. People have realized, hey, man, something, something big's going on over here. They're kind of congregating over there. And the crowd, as we're about to see, they speak three blessings, or they pray three prayers over Boaz and Ruth that ultimately really end up being very prophetic in nature. Watch this. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, that, that's Ruth, may he make Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah, that's his, his clan inside of his, his tribe, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so the first blessing that the crowd prays over this newly engaged, I guess, couple, Boaz and Ruth, is that she may be like Rachel and Leah. Now, a little Old Testament history. Rachel and Leah were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they, they are, in a sense, the matriarchs of the people of God. And so when the people pray this blessing over Ruth, they are essentially saying, God, make Ruth like these women. May, may she also give birth to someone of great significance in your kingdom, O Lord. Now, they, they had no idea how prophetic this prayer actually was. The second blessing they pray is that Boaz would be renowned or that he would be made famous in Bethlehem. Again, they had no idea how true this would become because someone very significant would be born in Bethlehem from the line of Boaz and Ruth. You may have heard of the guy. His name is Jesus. Thirdly, they say, may your house be like the house of Perez. Now, Perez was one of the sons of Judah. You probably have heard of the tribe of Judah in Israel. It's this particular tribe that would eventually give us King David. And then eventually after that, give, give us Jesus uh, himself. In fact, the book of Revelation describes Jesus or calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. So the people are, are pumped, right? They're, they're excited. This is really incredible, this thing that they're witnessing. They're, they're celebrating. They're, they're blessing Boaz and Ruth. They're praying over them prophetically, even though they don't even realize it. And at this point, you have to imagine uh, Boaz, maybe, um, maybe he's got Mr. Mr. No Name Sandal, and you know he's sprinting to the florist, like he's got to get a bouquet of flowers, and he's got to go tell Ruth 
what just happened. And so maybe we can picture Boaz. He's got, he's got the sandal behind his back and he's got the flowers behind his back and he goes to wherever Ruth is and he, he knocks on the door, right? And she opens the door like, what happened? What happened, Boaz? And he's like, bam, I got the sandal. I got some flowers, baby. Your boy did it. We're getting married. And so everybody's excited. They're probably embracing, crying. They're pumped up. This is an incredible scene. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. So finally, this is happening. Like, this is what we've all been hoping for, right? And they get together. He gets the right to marry her. Verse 13, now they have their wedding ceremony. They're married. And he went into her. That's biblical language for they went on their honeymoon and really enjoyed themselves. And then the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And so they get married. Young people, notice this sequence here. <laughs> get married, then they go on their honeymoon, and then she gets pregnant and they have a son. And this is the story, this the fairy tale story ending that we've all been hoping for, praying for the entire time. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So the women of Bethlehem are gathering around Naomi, praising God and reminding their friend Naomi of God's goodness and faithfulness to her. They're like, hey, Naomi, remember, you, you came back here a couple months ago and you felt like God had abandoned you, and you felt like you were left empty after your husband and your two boys died, but now, look at you now, girl. You have Ruth as your daughter, who is better to you than seven sons ever would be, and now you have this little boy, who in essence is gonna be like your grandson, and he's gonna care for you, and he's gonna restore life to you. He's gonna nourish you in your old age. Now, in this culture, having a son was everything. Yeah, it was absolutely everything to have a son in this culture because they were the ones that continued a family line. They were the ones through which the inheritance of the family would pass through. So for them to say to Naomi, Ruth is better for you than having seven sons, seven being the number of perfection or completion, this was essentially their way of saying to Naomi, Ruth's love for you is better than having an infinite number of sons. That's how awesome God has been to you to give you this daughter. And now, not only do you have the most amazing daughter who loves you, now you also have this little baby boy who's gonna care for you, who's gonna watch over you, who's gonna continue your family line. And they are reminding Naomi, Naomi, God has not forgotten about you. God has not forgotten about you. And maybe somebody out there in the room needs to hear that this morning. God has not forgotten about you either. He never forgets about his sons and his daughters. Now, this is, this is important not to miss, right? This, this, this point is really critical in the narrative because it, it was when Naomi felt the most lost in her life, it was when Naomi felt most empty and most abandoned by God and most forgotten by God that he was actually silently and sovereignly working on making her one of the most blessed women that has ever walked the face of this planet. And that leads us right into truth 
number two this morning. Number two, God's sovereign love is our greatest comfort. God's sovereign love is our greatest comfort. Christian, you need to understand, you are never forgotten. You are never forgotten. You are never less than perfectly loved by your Redeemer. And so when you are tempted to feel like God has forgotten you, when you are tempted to feel like God has abandoned you, never forget that in God's silence, his silent hand of loving providence is always at work on your behalf, even when you can't see it. And that should be our greatest comfort as followers of Jesus. Now, remember also in all of this stuff about Ruth being better than seven sons, remember, she's a Moabite. We kind of forget this in the process of reading this. She was a Moabite. She, she was a former idol worshiper. She worshiped this demonic god called Chemosh where they would literally go and sacrifice and torture babies to, to satisfy this god. She was one of them. And having lived in Moab, a very promiscuous, amoral society, she very likely also lived a very amoral, promiscuous lifestyle. Ruth very likely had a very messy and sinful past coming from Moab. Not only that, she would have been detested in Israel being from Moab. Like people would have seen her and just thought, man, she is the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. She's got no morals. She has no character at all. And yet, she is now the mother to a very important person in history. We'll see how important in just a minute. But don't miss this point before we move on. Number three, God takes broken people and uses them in spectacularly beautiful ways in his kingdom. Always has, always will. God takes the most broken people with the most jacked up stories and past and he takes them and he hand selects them and he uses them in spectacularly beautiful ways in his kingdom. And I say all of that to say to those of you who might be here this morning who like me have struggled with shame. Maybe those in the room who are here this morning and maybe Maybe you've thought or maybe you even think this morning that God couldn't love someone like you. Or maybe you think, man, God would never use somebody like you. I want you to know, if that's what you're thinking, that you are exactly the kind of person that God tends to hand select for really amazing, beautiful things in his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but that is a great encouragement to my heart. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his, his nurse or like his nanny. Now, this, this is beautiful. This is incredible. Naomi, who came back to Bethlehem, empty, broken, devastated, bitter, hurting, she is now full. She's got a, she's all this baby in her lap who's gonna carry on her family name forever and he's gonna care for her for the rest of her life. Only God could write this kind of story for Naomi. And friend, only God can write the kind of story in your life that he intends for you to live. Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. We kind of get there and we're like, 
It's amazing. That story was perfect. Everything that we've been hoping for in this story has come to pass. Like Boaz and Ruth are married now. Had a, had a baby, so now they have redemption. Naomi, who came back empty, is now full. Like, this is incredible. We kind of feel like this is the end. They lived happily ever after the end. And this is the point in the narrative where, like, if you've ever been in a movie theater and you think the movie is over, right, and the, the credits start to roll and everybody kind of gets up and grabs their popcorn and starts walking out, and all of a sudden, you're in the tunnel and you hear the main character come back on and everybody kind of runs back in and peeks around and kind of watch the end of the story. Well, there's, there's, this is what's happening here. Like, there's an extra scene. It's not completely over yet. There's one more important truth to be revealed about this baby boy named Obed. Look at the middle of verse 17. Obed, this baby boy, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David as in King David. David as in the most famous king probably to ever walk this planet. David, the man whom God said about, he's, he's a man after my own heart. Ruth, the Moabitess, is the great-grandmother of King David. Now, look at the genealogy that closes the book. Now, if you're anything like me, you kind of read books of the Bible, you get to the genealogy, and you just hit skip, 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 then you get back to the good stuff. But that would be a mistake here. I mean, these are actually here for a purpose, for a reason. So watch this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And the genealogy actually doesn't end there. It actually continues in Matthew chapter one, the first chapter in the first book of the New Testament. Don't turn there, this will be on the screens for you, but I need you to see this before we, before we finish. Watch this, beginning in verse two, Matthew one. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Amminadab. This should sound familiar to you because this is now the genealogy that we are picking back up on in Ruth four. And Amimadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who, by the way, was, um, was not a, a Jewish woman, was not a woman of faith. She was actually a Gentile prostitute, also in the line of Jesus, which is pretty fascinating. So father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whom we just read about, by Ruth. So there Ruth is, right in the genealogy of Jesus, there she is. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. The genealogy continues probably eight or 10 more generations. We're gonna pick up in verse 15. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of, listen, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Boaz, the family redeemer, Ruth, the Moabite, 
are part of the family line that would bring us the ultimate redeemer in Jesus. Now what you and I are meant to see here is that Ruth is a story within a much bigger story. Just like your story, friend, is a story that is set within the context of a much bigger, much greater story. See, the the story of Ruth is a story of redemption through a baby born in Bethlehem named Obed who would save a family. But that story ultimately points us to another story, a greater story of redemption when another little baby boy would be born in Bethlehem named Jesus who would not just redeem one family but who would redeem all of the families of the earth who would call on him and put their trust and faith in him. Friend, our redeemer has come. Your, your redeemer has come for you, and his name is Jesus. And, and he is the, the truer and the better Boaz. He is the, the truer and the better Obed. He is the one in whom your soul can find rest. I love this quote from Church Father Augustine. I'm gonna put it on the screens for you. He wrote this so many years ago, but it's still just as relevant for us today. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Friend, Jesus has come to redeem and restore and forgive and heal and make whole. The whole book of Ruth teaches us that God brings people from sadness to joy. That God takes people from a place of curse and he moves them to a place of blessing. That he takes them from bitterness to fullness. That he takes them from hopelessness to hope field. That he takes them from death to life. Jesus has come, and he has the right, he has the resources, and he has the resolve to redeem you right now, right where you sit in this very moment. He has paid the price to rescue you, redeem you, and set you free. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads with me just for a moment. We're gonna sing in just a minute, but I want us to spend a couple of minutes just reflecting not just on Ruth 4, but really the whole, the whole book, the whole narrative. And we're gonna frame our, our kind of our time with one question. So I'm just gonna give you one simple question. And I would just challenge you to really answer this as honestly as you can. The question is this. Have, have you been redeemed by Jesus? Not do you go to church, not did you pray a prayer of EBS when you were seven, not any of that stuff, but have you ever been redeemed by Jesus? In, in Mark 8, Jesus asks a really haunting question that has kind of reverberated throughout history for the last 2,000 years. And the question he asks is this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul in the process? So friend, I ask you again, have you been redeemed by Jesus? And if your answer to that one singular question, the most important question that any of us will ever answer in this life, if your answer to that question of have I been redeemed by Jesus is a resounding yes, like there's no question in your mind, there's no doubt in your heart, you're a Christian, you know him, you love him, you follow him. If that's you, please understand that he has redeemed you and he has sent you out on a mission of redemption to those around you. He has redeemed you and in a real sense sent you out to be a redeemer. 
And so let me ask the Christians in the room this morning, who is it that you need to have coffee with this week? Who is it in your life who is far from God? Maybe they have doubts, maybe they have church hurt. I don't know what their situation is, but who is far from God in your circle that you need to have coffee with or lunch with this week? Young people, man, which, which classmate do you need to share your story, your faith story with this week? Which coworker, which neighbor do you need to invite to one of our Easter services so that they can hear the best news in the world? Christian, you have been redeemed and you have been sent out as an agent of redemption into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your college campus or your high school campus, the places where you work, live, and play every single day of your life. You're not there by accident. You're there for a purpose. And so the question is simply, are you gonna leverage your life and the people God has placed in your life for his kingdom and for his glory? And to the non-Christian in the room, so happy that you're, that you're here. But I, I need you to see before you leave today, I need you to see that you like all of us once were, you, you are Ruth in this story. Apart from your Redeemer, apart from Jesus, you are, you are spiritually bankrupt. And whether you realize it or not, you are buried underneath your sin, you are blind spiritually, you are suffocating under your own rebellion, even if you don't realize it. And your only hope, just like Ruth's only hope, is to run to your Redeemer, Jesus who sacrificed everything to rescue you. Listen, listen to me. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he's pursuing you and he's come after you. So do you know him? Have you, have you placed your faith and your trust in him and him alone? And if you haven't done that, I want you to know that your time to do that is right now, in this very moment. The scriptures say that today is the day of salvation. Don't delay, friend. We're not promised next week. We're not promised tomorrow. Some of us may not see tomorrow. Some of us may not see tonight. We're not promised our next breath Today, right now, is your chance to respond to the best news this world has ever heard. And listen to me, if that's you, if that's where you're at, I want you to, there's no magical formula or words that you have to pray and just get right. We're gonna pray in silence in just a minute. And when we get to that time, I just wanna invite you to simply ask him to redeem you. He doesn't care about your words. He cares about the position of your heart. And so simply in your own words, in a moment, if that's you, I want to encourage you. I want to persuade you to cry out to God, your Redeemer, and say, Jesus, please redeem me. I realize I can't do this on my own. I need you to forgive me of my sins. I need you to give me a new life. And the great news is this. Listen, he promises to do just that. He promises to do just that. And so I wanna carve out just a minute or two. Just pray silently right where you are. You do business with God. And wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I want you to just ask God, God, what, what is my next step? What are you asking me to do in this moment in light of the truth that you've given us through your word? So you pray, and I'll come back in a minute and close us in prayer.
Father, would you lead us by your spirit? We, we want to know you. God, we wanna, we wanna walk in the beautiful pathway that you set before your people, God. Thank you for, for sending not just a redeemer, but for sending the perfect redeemer in Jesus who came into this wrecked, busted up world and lived a perfect life, a perfect, sinless life, the life that we should have lived, God. A redeemer who died a brutal death in our place to satisfy your justice against sin the justice that we should have faced, but he took for us. And Father, for that Redeemer who didn't stay buried in that tomb outside of Jerusalem, but who rose three days later, just like he said he would do to give us, his children, freedom now in this life and forever in eternity with you, God. And Father, so I pray for those of us who have already been redeemed, God, would you help us to actually live as agents of redemption to those around us, God. Just showering love and showering grace to everybody you cross our path with so that we could point them to the ultimate source of all love and all grace, and that is Jesus, our Redeemer, in whose strong and beautiful name we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.